Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Saturday the 1st of April 2023. No fooling. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again, mate. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the month of April? Lots of things up in the sky for the month of April. Well, the first thing that's happening is it's not in the sky per se, but daylight saving ends here in Australia and for a lot of the Southern Hemisphere as well. So you'll have to put your clocks back. Uh, It also means that when you were used to getting up in the brightness and uh, coming home at home with uh, lots of light, it's now dark and dark. So you've got more time to observe the sky. Yep. So again, the planetary actions mostly in the evening skies. We've got uh, bright Venus and bright Mars uh, very prominent in the uh, evening sky. Mercury does enter the evening twilight, but it's going to be almost impossible to see uh, this month. If you're looking in the morning sky, Saturn is now high enough in the morning sky to be readily visible for an hour before sunset and maybe even an hour and a half. Jupiter does enter the morning twilight, but it does this very late in the month. So you won't be able to really see it until the next month. And of course, the signal event this month is the total solar eclipse visible in the far west of Western Australia. Yes. And I'll talk more about that later on. But as usual, I'm going to start with the moon. So the full moon is on April the 6th. April the 13th is the last quarter. And of course, this means that over the Easter long weekend, if you're out camping, this will be an excellent time to to look up into the dark skies and see lots of clusters and nebula, as well as Venus and Mars, without the moon getting in the way. The new moon is on April the 20th, and then April 28th, uh, the first quarter moon faces us in the uh, early evening skies. It's also an apogee first quarter moon, so if you're going to collect 
like I do, apogee and perigee first quarters, then that's a good time to image them. Remember, the uh, the uh, uh, it's not just the full moon which has these inverted commas supermoons, but also all phases of the moon can occur at apogee and perigee. It's just that last quarter is too early in the morning for most of us to get up, and new moon you can't see the moon. So the full moon in the first quarter are the best for seeing the differences in sizes between the apogee and perigee moons. Yep. And of course, perigee is on April the 16th. So having dealt with the moon, let's move into the evening sky. As I said, Mercury is entering the evening sky, but it's never going to get very high. It's very low to the horizon, which means that it never really exits the twilight. It's uh, on the other 12th, it's, it's furthest from the sun, but it's only a few degrees above the uh, western horizon at civil twilight. So even if you have a level unobstructed horizon, you'll need a pair of binoculars and uh, a very good sense of direction in order to pick it up. Yep. This is not true for Venus, though. Venus is now becoming far more easily, easily seen. It's well visible uh, at civil twilight, definitely visible at nautical twilight, and uh, it's still uh, a little bit above the horizon at astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark. So remember, civil twilight's half an hour after sunset, nautical twilight, which is only an hour after sunset, and astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark is an hour and a half after sunset. So Venus has two uh, very interesting encounters this month. As you, If you watch over April, you'll notice Venus comes closer and closer to the iconic open cluster, the Pleiades. And from the 10th to the 12th, Venus and the Pleiades are within easy binocular distance. It'll look very interesting. Pleiades have five to six components which are visible to the unaided eye. And Venus is dramatically brighter than this, so you might see the stars of the Pleiades be washed out by Venus. But it'll be very interesting to watch uh, Venus go past this iconic cluster. Nice. And then on the 23rd, Venus will be just three degrees from the crescent moon, not as close as it was uh, this month, but it will still fit nicely into binoculars and still be a very nice sight. Now, uh, in binoculars, you can't, of course, see Venus as anything more than a bright blob at the moment, but it, through a telescope, you can see Venus looking like the gibbous moon and it will start to become more and more like the half moon as the months wear on. Cool. Mars is shrinking and fading. It's still prominent, though. Telescopically, it's now not really worth your effort unless you've got a super telescope, but it's still lovely and bright. At the start of the month, Mars is close to the open cluster M35, and as the moon wanes, it'll be easier to see M35 as the sky gets darker. So it'll be within binocular distance from about the 1st to the 4th of April. Now, Mars has been very close to Taurus for so long. We're, we're used to seeing it close to the V shape of the Hyades. But now Mars is heading towards the classical constellation of Gemini. And on the 14th, Mars is very close to the uh, third magnitude star, Epsilon Geminorum. 
So not a particularly spectacular encounter, but still very interesting and uh, very easy to see. Yep. On the 26th, Mars is about five degrees from the waxing moon, so it just fits within the field of a medium-strength binoculars, but still interesting, interesting to see. Jupiter has lost the view and won't turn up into the morning sky until very late. And the morning skies then? Saturn has been climbing higher and higher into the morning skies. And I hope some of you were able to glimpse uh, when Saturn was uh, close to the crescent moon earlier this month. Uh, I was able to see it with binoculars. But the, by now, you should be able to see Saturn fairly easy, uh, an, easily an hour before sunrise. Yep. On the 16th and then on the 17th, Saturn is near the thin crescent moon, so they, the two days bracket are Saturn. Not particularly close, but it will certainly look very nice. Now, Orion, the hunter, is sinking to the west, and Scorpius is rising in the east still. A bit lower and higher than it was for last month. April is still a very good time to see the dark constellation of the EMU, of the EMU and you're best looking for this around 10 p.m. local time when the sky yep. is fully dark. And so when you're out and about for the Easter break, look east and you should see the, the view over your campsites. Yeah. The signal event of this month is the total solar eclipse. So on the 20th, the sun will be eclipsed. And the path of the totality will pass across Northwest Cape in Western Australia. It'll be visible from Exmouth and Learmonth. Now, if you haven't already booked your campsite or hotel, it's too late. Everything was booked out ages ago. Yeah. Because there's, there's not very much out there. So for the rest of us, we'll see a partial solar eclipse. Now, it's best, of course, from Western Australia. Uh, Broome and Geraldton seeing greater than 8% of the sun covered. Perth, 71% of the sun covered. Darwin gets a pretty good view also with 80% of the sun covered. Then Cairns with 50%, Townsville with 36%, and Adelaide with 21%. Most of the east coast south of Brisbane sees less than 10% of the sun covered by the moon. So... It's not as exciting for them. In fact, uh, I think Hobart gets only about 5%, so you'll only see a tiny chip. So when to look, times are very uh, individually matched to locations. But for Western Australia, if you start looking around about 10 a.m., for Central Australia, if you're looking around about 12, and the Eastern States, you should be looking around about 1 p.m. Now, I have to strongly emphasize that you should be using safe solar viewing techniques. Do not look directly at the sun. Don't use the things that are called filters, inverted commas. So overexposed film, smoke glass are not, and I repeat, not safe. You can only, should only use special solar-rated uh, viewing spectacles from astronomical suppliers. They're a bit expensive, but your eyes are worth every cent of that. Having said that, 14-grade welding glass, also appropriate. But I 
strongly recommend getting, uh, if you're going to look directly, getting the solar viewing spectacles from an astronomical supply shop. And if you don't want to be using a telescope, never use eyepiece filters for telescopes. If one of these cracks and you're looking through your eyepiece, then that's your eye gone. So at no time is it safe to view the eclipse with the unaided eye. I'll talk about the totality shortly. Okay. Of course, the cheapest and easiest way is to make a pinhole and a stiff square of cardboard and project the image on the sun onto a flat surface. You're basically making a pinhole camera, and by uh, optimising the distance of your pinhole to the uh, what you're projecting it on, preferably a, a large, white, flat surface, you can get a very decent view. You can also use projection for telescopes and binoculars. Uh, this is a bit more complicated, and I'll be giving advice on how to do this on my Astro blog later on. We'll provide a link to that at the end of this episode, Ian. No worries. So I'll have it as a special post on viewing the eclipse. Uh, for those of you who are lucky, lucky enough to actually be on the path of totality, you can look at the fully eclipsed sun at, at the moment of totality. But before and after when the sun isn't fully eclipsed, uh, you don't look at the sun. It's only when the sun is completely covered by the moon and soon as soon as you start seeing Bailey's beads, look away. But one thing that may accompany the sun when you, uh, if you're in the part of the totality, as well as looking at the beautiful corona around the sun, you may notice two bright objects not far away from the sun. That's Jupiter, off to the left hand of the sun, and off to the right, it's Mercury. You should also be able to see Venus, but that's further away, and you may be far more interested in actually looking directly at the rona and the sun itself and waiting for Bailey's beads rather than try and uh, look around to see, see Venus. But Jupiter should be very easy to see, very close to the sun. So that's the, the big event, the total eclipse. And for, for the vast majority of us, the partial eclipse. Partial eclipses, of course, are not as exciting as the full totality, but they're still very nice indeed. And I've used, uh, for example, I've used the holes in Jack's biscuits to project the uh, crescent sun onto uh, surfaces. So you, or you can use colanders or the light coming through leaves to get really, these really amazing images of the sun. So don't be despair, even though it's not totality where you are, for the vast majority of us, we'll see something interesting anyway. Fantastic. And Ian, do you have a tangent for us for April? I do indeed, and you may be aware that April 1st is April's Fool's Day, where people <laughs> try and do pranks on each other. But I'm not going to talk about a prank. I'm going to talk about the colour out of space. Now, you may have heard of the colour out of space. It's a famous H.P. Lovecraft uh, story. H.P. Yep. Lovecraft being a very famous, uh, famous horror writer and racist. And his story, a mysterious colour, comes to Earth in a meteor. Uh, and what he tries to convey is this colour is impossible to conceive with our limited retinas. Now, of course, the colours that we can see are just a limited slice of the electromagnetic spectrum, which ranges all the way from radio waves down to uh, what we can see with our eyes, to high, highly energetic gamma rays and all that in between. So compared to the broad palette of light, 
that is the electromagnetic spectrum, our visible spectrum is a very poor thing indeed. But other organisms aren't so limited. For example, bees can see into the ultraviolet. Cool. And, of course, when we peer into the night sky, we can see only a fraction of the colours of this enormous electromagnetic rainbow. Thankfully, in some cases, of course, being denied the glories of the X-ray skies is a minor inconvenience against the in, in, uh, disadvantage of being blasted by X-rays. So our atmosphere blocks a large chunk of the extended electromagnetic rainbow, uh, but our orbiting telescopes can pick up gamma rays, X-rays, far ultraviolet. The Hubble telescope, for example, views near-ultraviolet as well as visible and near-infrared, and the sighting uh, JWST does red and mid-infrared. Many of the, the, the pictures you see taken by Hubble are actually assembled from tiny slices of the uh, electromagnetic rainbow. They use narrowband filters and then assemble the colours by assigning uh, colours to these filters. Yep. So the, the, Hubble, the, the Hubble's Imager actually just is black and white. You see color, you put a color, a, a, a narrowband filter in front of it, take an image with that filter, put another filter, take an image, put another filter, take an image. Now, there's, a, there's actually something called the Hubble palette, which uses the light from ionized sulfur as red, the light from hydrogen alpha as green, and the light from oxygen as blue. Now, this doesn't quite correspond to their actual color. So the, the Hubble palette produces some glorious images, but our eyes wouldn't see it the same way. So the, the colours out of space are our most iconic space images and not actually what our retina would see. Now, in Lovecraft's story, the colour out of space was carried to Earth by a meteorite. Sadly, most meteorites are very, fairly boring, stony meteorites called chondrites. And well, they look like rocks. However, a special subset of these of these called the carbonation chondrites look dark or even black. In fact, the uh, most famous of these is Australia's own Murchison meteorite, dark, yeah. crumbly meteorite that smells faintly of kerosene. Otherworldly, but not exactly uh, stimulating eldritch horror. Now, the dark colour is polyaromatic carbons. These are complex molecules that form from the action of ultraviolet light on simpler compounds like methane and ethane. Uh, comets and some asteroids are not notorious for being as black as coal from the polyaromatic hydrocarbons on their surface. And the reddish colour of many cubia belt objects may be due to similar polyaromatic hydrocarbons, but different ones that uh, have a, a, a different spectrum. Now, that's colours on things, on, on meteorites. But in interstellar space, most of the gas is simple. So for like hydrogen, and where we see the light of uh, hydrogen, hydrogen alpha. But there are more complex ones. For example, ethanol is being famous. The Orion Nebula is full of ethanol. Mind you, if you distilled down all the uh, ethanol in the Orion Nebula, you'd have a tiny film of ethanol uh, on, in your glass, not enough to get drunk on. But as well as hydrogen and oxygen and methanol and ethanol, also in space there's a mysterious series of infrared emission bands between 30 to 20 micromiles. 
micromole meters, especially a 3.3 micrometer information feature and a weaker 3.4 meter. Now, we've long suspected that there are more complex molecules than simply uh, ethanol in space, and uh, simple uh, polymeric uh, aromatic hydrocarbons have been postulated. But looking at this spectrum, a group of researchers have suggested instead of these molecules being quite simple, what you're seeing is quite complex. And the, the features of the spectrum, especially the forest of microwave peaks seen here, uh, is due to actually there being very large, complex hydrocarbons. In fact, they, uh, they looked at their spectrum and from that they generated the most likely structure. Uh, now, this is a, uh, a true monstrosity, twisted tentacular arms of aliphatic and aromatic chains. And these, this octopoid molecule with a colour that no human eye can perceive is truly the colour out of space. Wow. As segue to that, Ian, is I'm interviewing... Dr. Rudy, Dr. Rodolfo, known as Rudy Montez, and he's from the Harvard Smithsonian, and he works in the Chandra Center there, and his job is to pull down the data from the Chandra X-ray telescope and then put it in a form that can be used by scientists all over the world and one of the questions I'm asking him is, how can Chandra turn invisible high-energy X-rays into something that scientists and now the general public can see? So a very nice segue. In the middle of next month, an interview with Dr. Rudy Montez from the Chandra Centre. That will be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that uh, because the the, the, uh, the those high energy waves are just really hard to to convert into something we really understand. Yeah, well, you mentioned you mentioned the Hubble pellet. I'm just wondering if there's a Chandra pellet. That is a very good question. I'd like. Uh, can you ask him that? And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it depends on the number the number of wavelengths that they look at, but you you can. Just imagine that um, they had, they could assemble uh, uh, different uh, X-rays, soft, hard X-rays into different colours and get a, a chamber of colour. Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, please ask him that. Okay, I will on your behalf, Ian. Thank you very much. <laughs> no worries. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. We'll remind all of our listeners that... You can find Ian's fabulous blog, What to Look For in the Month of April on Astroblogger. And you can also find comprehensive information, including star maps and times on Southern Skywatch. They're easily found with whatever search engine is your favourite. Exactly. And of course, when you're out camping at Easter time, looking up at the emu, you can pretend some of your Easter eggs are giant emu eggs. <laughs> May the chocolate be with you, Ian. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. We'll catch you all later. Bye.
And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free, and unsponsored. So in two weeks' time on Astrophys, you'll find out all the very latest in X-ray astronomy and high-energy astrophysics from Dr. Rodolfo Montez from the Harvard-Smithsonian Chandra X-ray Observatory. Till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.